0: The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, lamb for a household. If the, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that they, uh, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, so that no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now verse 24 and 25. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you said. Be gone, and bless me also. Lastly, verse 40 and following. The time the people of Israel were, lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went up from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. All right, let's pray together. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would show us wonderful things in your law. Show us things about the good news of Jesus, about the gospel, and press them into reality in our hearts, we pray. We these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I, uh, I want to make sure my children know I love them. So uh, I ask them a question pretty often, almost every single day, maybe multiple times a day How much do I love you? I ask them that almost every day. And uh, they've been trained to respond appropriately. Um, Abil, our three-year-old, says, you love me this much. Except for her arms are shorter, so it's more like this much. But, you know, the, the point is, as far as she can reach, that's how much I love her. Caleb, being four, is a little more sophisticated. And, uh, I'll ask him, uh, Caleb, how much do I love you? And, uh, he stopped doing the this much thing a long time ago. Now he says, he made this up on his own, as much as you can. <laughs> Sometimes true, boy. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I fail. But when he's being really provocative, and this happens probably a couple, almost twice a week, he'll say, with a smile on his face, "You love me as much as Jesus." And I'll say, uh, "No, actually, I'm sorry, but I don't." And we have to have a little discussion. Why, Daddy? Why don't you love me as much as Jesus loves me? Well, um, my children know somewhat, you know, somewhat limited dim fashion, but a real fashion, that we love them. They enjoy our love. They're sheltered by it. They live in the protection of our home. And yet I'm also convinced that they don't quite understand it, that they don't rightly prize it, because a child isn't able to understand the cost involved, the sacrifice involved in love. They simply receive it as it is without really being able to see behind the scenes what goes into loving them. And uh, this might be something you actually are discovering now in college when you realize, my gosh, what my parents did for me. Actually, you may not realize it until you have your own children. And um, because we're not really good at understanding the cost and sacrifice involved in love, I think we have an unrealistic understanding of the value and nature of love. In America, and maybe this is true in other places, we tend to think love is free. Love is easy. After all, all we have to do is fall into it. How easy is that? You just fall into love. Really? Just fall. You should try it. Uh, No, it's not that easy. It's really not. It uh, involves effort. It involves cost. It involves sacrifice. And I think we underappreciate real costly love when we do meet it. Because we don't really understand that it costs something. Uh, And a good example of this is the response you get sometimes. Maybe you've even done this yourself. You say it to yourself when someone says, God loves you. Tell someone God loves you, or someone tells you God loves you, and maybe you think, "Yeah, I know that's true," but then you think, "Well, that's sort of like you know socks at Christmas time, or those uh, little Valentine's Day hearts that taste like toothpaste." Uh, thanks, thanks for giving them to me, but um, I really wanted something else. Uh, I really prefer something else. That's not. I know God loves me, but I'm not sure that's sufficient. I'd actually rather have a substitute or something else to supplement this. And I think we fail to realize or we forget the radical cost involved in God's love for his people. And because we don't realize that cost, we don't love him well in return. Tonight we're going to see that because we undervalue God's love, we have to see and remember his sacrifice. Because we undervalue his love... We have to see and remember his sacrifice. So we're going to look at a startling sacrifice. It should be startling, actually. A startling sacrifice. A sacrificial service. So the startling sacrifice is this. Okay, we're, to at the stage, if you haven't been here, or if you've forgotten, we're between, like, the ninth round and the tenth round of this heavyweight fight, as it was supposed to be built between Pharaoh, the anti-god, and God. God's now unleashed nine plagues on Pharaoh, this uh, much-expected battle it has not been a battle at all. It's been a rout. And uh, now, with the 10th round, we're waiting for the knockout blow. Or really, we're just waiting for the end. Just please get this thing over with. Uh, it's clear that Pharaoh is not who he's supposed to be. He's not really a god. Um, the gods of Egypt were false gods. Uh, but the startling part is this. As God's about to unleash the 10th plague, the plague of death, he says, it's like he does, it's like he turns to Israel and says, hey, uh, y'all better duck. Seriously, you better duck. It's coming your way, too. I'm about to throw a punch of death, and uh, it's coming for everybody. And you can imagine Israel's thinking, as they're receiving this instruction about how to offer a sacrifice, us, too? Uh, Really, us? Because up to this point, God has often made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Uh, He sent certain plagues on Egypt and actually made a point of saying, so Pharaoh, I'm going to show you how much I'm in control. I'm going to strike you with hail, but the Israelites, there'll be no hell on them. Or when you have boils on your people in your home and I flick to you with these painful sores, people in Israel will be fine. I have the power to make a distinction. But when it comes to death, there's no distinction. There's no distinction. And maybe it's because death is due. Maybe it's because as a result their sin of what god promised way back in genesis if you sin you shall die the death is due to them all in uh, the wonderful now old movie unforgiven it's a hard one it's an old western with plenty eastwood um there's a scene in which billy who's this uh young naive inexperienced gunfighter he's just killed his first man and uh he's trying to pacify his guilt and uh, the Eastwood figure is not helping very much. He says something like, yeah, Billy, when you kill a man, you take away all he has and all he ever will have. And uh, Billy, trying to placate his guilt, says, but he had it coming, didn't he? He had it coming. To which the Eastwood character responds, we all have it coming, kid. And I think Eastwood saying more than we're all going to die. I think he's saying, it's all coming for us because we all deserve it. And this is hard for some people to, to understand or to accept, this idea of judgment. I mean, if there's one thing that we hate in America, it's the idea of judgment, of being judged. I mean, we like to judge others. We're really good at that. We have game shows where we call in and judge people. Uh, we love to judge, but we don't want to be judged. And yet we know it's a part of life. And uh, we also know that the uh, the bigger the offense on the person, the stricter the sentence. So when you're a child and under your parents' care, if you uh, strike your sibling got time timeout or a toy taken away or spanking or something. I don't know what happened. But uh, if you, um, in college, strike a cop, you get arrested. And if you, as a citizen of the United States, decide to strike the president, it's called treason. And they may, like, bomb you with a drone or stick you in Guantanamo. We just won't see you again for a long time. That's all I know. And so what would happen if you, in your impertinence, in your thirst for autonomy, in your desire to be your own God, decide to figuratively strike God? You You wouldn't actually hit him, but you just refuse to acknowledge him, worship him. You know what's right. You do what's wrong. What do you expect to receive from the God of the universe? Uh, We should expect death. We really should. We should expect nothing less than death. And it's at this point that we find the startling substitute, the startling sacrifice. And we find here a substitute in verses 4 to 8. It's a perfect male lamb that these people are supposed to go and find as families. Go find a perfect male lamb. Perfect because it needs to be without defect, because we, of course, are defected. Uh, we need something not like us. And then we're to keep it four days. That's strange. Anybody find that strange? Take it on the 10th day. Keep it to the 14th day. Why would you do that? you know what happens in four days when you keep a lamb? You start to like it. Seriously. Your kids are like, hey, can we keep it? Can we keep the lamb? No, we've got to kill it. What? Got to kill the lamb? I, uh, a couple of years ago, I lived in Virginia, and uh, I visited this man who was raising two pigs for slaughter. And uh, he had done this before, so he was experienced at this. But I was surprised to hear him call the pigs because when he called them, he, he said something like, here, here, Osama. Here's Saddam. I'm like, excuse me? You, you named your pigs after some terrorists and ruthless dictators? He's like, yeah, because my natural inclination is to get attached to them. So if I train my mind to think that they're terrorists, then I'll hate them and I won't care. <laughs> Does it work? No, not really. <laughs> But well, what happens is a natural identification with the animal. And that's what's happening here with the lamb. They're, they are supposed to be thinking over these four days, this creature, this cute little lamb, has to die because I need to die. It has to die because I deserve to die. And in verses 6 through 8, they kill the lamb. They take the blood and put it on the door of their home. They eat the flesh. And what we have here is a sacrifice a sort of foretells a sacrifice that's coming that will cover sin and make us pure and make us holy. And uh, this substitute is sufficient. See that in verses 12 and 13. God comes to execute judgment. He comes to execute judgment on Israel and all the foreign gods and those who deserve death by striking all the firstborn in the land. And he explains in verse 13, When I come, I'll see the blood and I'll pass over. But don't see the blood. I'll strike and I'll kill. Why does he pass when he sees the blood? Because he sees what's already been struck. He sees a substitute that's sufficient, that's already been put to death for this family. He sees a perfect sacrifice that's sufficient. Now, you should be asking yourself, what? what I mean, really, what lamb is sufficient for me? I mean, I'm a person. It's a lamb. It's just a little lamb. Uh, why? And the reality is uh, it's not completely sufficient. And I think the people of the Old Testament sort of knew this, that these pointed forward to a future sacrifice that would be completely sufficient. And so Peter, talking about his friend Jesus, writes, if you call on God as Father who judges impartially, that's what we have here, an impartial judgment. God's looking at the Israelites and the Egyptians and saying, you both deserve to die. If you call on him, who judges impartially according to your deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing you were ransomed, that is, set free from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. I mean, we'd love that. I've got plenty of that. I can buy myself. I can perform well enough. I can get off the hook. I can save myself. Instead, we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot jesus is the only sufficient fully sufficient substitutionary lamb it's him all of these sacrifices point forward to that sacrifice to come we're saved from judgment not because we don't deserve it we do deserve it we're saved from judgment not because god doesn't really care i just forgive you i don't care no we're saved from judgment by judgment you should listen to that really carefully you're saved from judgment by judgment. Someone else takes your judgment. A sufficient substitute person of Jesus. Uh, there were two young boys, this is a true story, playing on the banks of the Mississippi River in St. Louis. Uh, they were told many times not to play there because the, the big barges would regularly drag the bottom of the river and deposit sediments up on the banks. And water would rush out of those uh, sand dunes and create large holes where people could fall into. And uh, one day, the brothers were playing and didn't come back. And so a search party was sent out to look for them. And after a few hours of searching, they found the youngest brother, buried up to his neck, uh, passed out. They dug him out partially, woke him up, revived him temporarily, and said, Where's your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. At the last moment, the older brother jumped in, stood underneath his younger brother, put him on his shoulders to keep him alive. What we have in Jesus is an older brother who jumps in and sacrifices us, himself for us. By faith, we stand on his shoulders. He is God's beloved firstborn son. God sent him as a perfect substitute for us, a sacrifice that's sufficient to die in our place, that we could live as his children. I said, this is a startling sacrifice. Are you startled by it? Seriously, people. All of you that are, maybe it's only this much, that you really long for love or to be loved. (coughs) But some of you are desperate for love. Are you startled by this? This this There's no love like this. It should be shocking that God's own son would dive into the deepest midst of the mess to bear you up, that by trusting in him, you would have life. The question this begs is, how do we respond? Do you believe it? One. And secondly, if you do believe it, how should you respond? And uh, we have two very clear things here, two clear ways to respond. And they both have to do with sacrificial service. This will just take a few minutes. Uh, We're called to remember. We have to see that this shocking substitute sacrifice is sufficient for us and then we need to remember it and uh what we have in our text is described in this really convoluted way i took certain passages we see a gift to the israelites a participation and a celebration they're told to sacrifice this lamb they're told exactly how to do it but if you were to read the whole chapter 12 and 13 you'd see it described two or three times you think what's the deal moses why can't you write clearly and what we have is God actually explaining to people 40 years after this event how to remember this event, how to participate in it. What he was saying is, this meal I'm giving you tonight, in which I will redeem you from Israel, I want you to do this every year, forever, as a way of participating in what I've done for you, as a way of celebrating. You're called to remember this. And, uh, you know, in verse 14, which I don't know if I read or not. Um, no, nope. verse 24, um, I think it is. He calls it a ritual, a rite. And uh, just by nature here in our culture, we t- we tend to take things like rites and write them off as dead and boring, right? Ritual, rite, like, okay. eh. Um, no, it's a celebration. It's described here twice as a feast, a seven-day-long feast. It's a party. It's a celebration. It is a solemn meal, but it's a celebration, too, to remember... To participate in what God has done to redeem them, and uh, this is what Israelites did for thousands of years—to participate in this redemptive work that God did for them. Now, I had to get very specific here in my application. I didn't ask Britta to talk about this, um, but she nailed it. Um, Ruf is not a church, and uh, that's important because uh, when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, perfectly fulfilled. Uh, the ultimate sacrifice uh, on the cross the night before he gathered with his men during the time of Passover and took the Passover meal and reinterpreted it around himself and gave to all his believers, all his followers, something called the Lord's Supper. To do this exact same thing. To strengthen their faith. To enable them to participate in what God has done. To help them to celebrate what he's done. And uh, in some ways... If you're not a Christian, the best way I can put this is it's sort of like Valentine's Day or like a wedding anniversary. It's a means of reliving the original event for the sake of strengthening your faith and strengthening your relationship. And uh, it's supposed to be fun as you remember back to what you've done together and as you prepare for life together going forward. And that's what the Lord's Supper is given, how it's given, why it's given to the church. And so if you're a Christian, I'm speaking specifically here to people that consider themselves to be Christians, uh, if you've not joined a church that believes the gospel and preaches the Bible, you need to do it. You need to do it for lots of reasons, but this is one reason. You need to do it because God has given a gift that he takes very seriously, this gift of the Lord's Supper, and he's given it to you to strengthen your faith, and you're depriving yourself of something that's very good for you. So um, that's one very specific application, but this text is about that. I'm not making this up. All right, and uh, this meal, this participation in the celebration, strengthens us for something. It strengthens us for living in the relationship. And that's important because this is not a one-sided thing. It's not just God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. It's all true, but it's supposed to be reciprocated. We're strengthened for a service of love. See this in verses 27 and verse 31 as well. When the people received this news that God was going to provide a sacrifice, that God was going to count the sacrifice sufficient to forgive them, that they were called to celebrate this over and over and over, what was their natural response? Bowed their heads and worshiped. In other words, they they dropped down and gave thanks. They they prayed. they, They sang songs of thanksgiving. They had a natural response of love toward the Lord. And Pharaoh even gets it right. When when they're finally sent out, Pharaoh says, and he gets it right only for a moment, but he says, go and serve the Lord. We are strengthened for service, for a service of love. Uh, you know how folks talk when they're in love, how they sort of give themselves away? Like, I didn't really realize this until I was like 16, and my uh, basketball coach during a game embarrassed me at halftime by saying, I don't know, we must have been losing by like 100 Because it was sort of one of those, like, pathetic, come on, guys. Like, I know we're terrible, but let's look at the bright side of things. (laughs) Speeches. And it actually went so bad as saying something like, and even Derek has a girlfriend. You've seen her. And I'm like, (laughs) I mean, it was sort of like that. And I was like, how'd they know? (laughs) Uh, And it's because uh, when two people really like each other, they talk about each other naturally. They drop hints, even if they don't know they're doing so. They're quick to serve the other. There's just behavioral things that clue that you care. And what I want to know is, uh, does that describe how folks view you and Jesus? People are eavesdropping like my coach and watching you. Do they see that you love him? Or are you just sort of using him for his love? Cheating it cheaply? Maybe you're ashamed. Maybe maybe you know he loves you, but you're a little ashamed of it. As though it cost him nothing. Maybe as though you deserved it. Or maybe uh, you do know. Maybe perhaps you do know who you are and what you deserve. And it's not this. It's not God's love. And you're reminded in the gospel and the good news of Jesus that Jesus was a perfect substitute for you. Here's the question. If you're hearing this for the first time or the thousandth time, are you startled? Man, seriously, if this bores you, I'm not sure what, what there is for you to live for. I mean, I'm not saying you should go and not live, uh, but I'm saying, man, your apathy is, is a big problem. We need to talk. If you're not startled by the fact that God will send a son to die for you as an expression of his love, I'm not sure where you are and understanding what love's all about. We should be startled, and we should be startled into lovingly serving him. So we're saved, in conclusion, out of a startling love by the sacrifice of Jesus. And we're strengthened by his gift, by remembering him, and we're strengthened to serve. So one of the things uh, that people in love do is write poetry. Um, I'm not going to write a, or read a poem to you. I promise. I haven't written poetry in a long time. Um, But uh, again, this was not planned, but we read a good piece of poetry earlier tonight. We sung it, and uh, it reads like this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. Isaac Watts is saying here, as we see clearly in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, uh, the clearest, most powerful depiction of love that there is. It's, It's amazing. It's so amazing, so divine, that the natural response of us should be to give ourselves fully and wholly to it. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Is this love startling to you? amazing if it's not pray for God to warm your heart if it's not at all you don't even know what this is pray for God to grant you understanding and all of us we need to look we need to look clearly at Jesus the startling sacrifice and understand again the cost of his love for us let's pray together great heavenly father we thank you that uh, you love your children enough to